Being prepared for more unknowns, I think, is one of the critical things. Is again, if you're looking at an engineer back in the 1950s, I think the future, not having been there personally, but I think the future probably <laughs> looked a lot more certain to them in the 50s. They're like, oh yeah, you know, we've just come out of this difficult time, and it's just progress, progress, progress. But I think we're seeing now it's way more complex than that. Systems, like global systems, are way more complex than that. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. We took a short break from the City Builder series last week to have some conversations about how COVID-19 is impacting our cities. But now the series continues. We've released over 40 episodes of 360 Degree City covering a crazy range of topics from cycling to public art to urban agriculture and much, much more. While we've explored issues and topics related to cities, we thought it'd be helpful to spend some time focusing on the different actors that impact city building. So we've developed a multi-part series where I talk to different kinds of city builders about what they do, why they do it, and what unique approaches and challenges they represent. Our hope is that by the end of the series, you'll have some new perspectives on the actors and how to work with them, whether you're a seasoned city builder yourself or just starting to explore the complexity of our communities. This episode is about the transportation engineer. I sit down with a former teammate of mine when I worked at the city of Calgary. So I'm Eric Wignan. I'm a senior transportation engineer with the city of Calgary. Uh, right now, a couple of things that I'm focused on is I'm coordinating our future of transportation portfolio. So that's looking at a lot of different new technologies like autonomous vehicles, uh, also new like construction technologies and data systems. And we're really just getting started pulling that together into a whole portfolio. And I've also been spending the last several years working on electric vehicles and guiding our electric vehicle strategy forward, which is an offshoot of the city's climate resilience strategy. Eric McNaughton joins me to discuss what it means to be a transportation engineer, the best of what they can bring to city building, and some problematic practices of the profession. So let's dive in. First things first, for those folks that are listening that haven't ever heard of a transportation engineer, can you talk about what transportation engineering is and what it does? Sure. It- it's a fairly wide range. I mean, there's traditional aspects of transportation engineering that have been going on for, for decades or more, and that's, you know, designing roads and bridges, tracks for trains, uh, managing traffic congestion, all those types of traditional activities. But more and more, transportation engineering has been focused on things that are around health, accessibility for all users, making sure that transportation is more sustainable, so less impact on the environment or on local communities, uh, and even getting into things like placemaking and that. And then some of the stuff that I've been more involved in, too, is really some of the emerging pieces, both around uh, new technologies and that kind of thing, but also even looking really closer at why do people make the decisions they make? So it's you know not just the technical side of engineering anymore. It's very much trying to understand human-driven decisions. Uh, and so how can we support people or how can we encourage people to do things that, that uh, both help them move? get where they need to go, but also reduce the impacts on, on other people and on, on the community as a whole. Hmm. Okay. And so, and so the evolution that you mentioned about, about the profession itself. Um, so can you talk about, you know, what transportation looked, felt like 50 years ago versus, you know, some of the really interesting and progressive things you're working on today? Yeah. So back, you know, you look at the 1950s coming out of World War II, it was a period really where we were starting to see mass adoption of cars and that kind of thing. So that 
for, for many decades, really set a tone for what transportation engineering was looking like. And it was that focus on roads and highways, uh, connecting cities across countries, particularly when you're looking at, at North America. Uh, there was sort of an economic development aspect to that. How do we move not just cars and people, but also the increasing focus on trucking and what have you as an ability to move goods across countries. Uh, so there was really a lot of focus on how do we build up that road infrastructure? And and I think back, you know, if you were an engineer in the 50s, that, that was that was tackling the right question because there was a lack of that infrastructure compared to, you know, the older infrastructure you had in cities that was more built around people walking from place to place, you know, in a relatively small community. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that just kind of kept going and kept going over the decades until we, we got to the point, and I think a lot of people would recognize is that, uh, with the sheer amount of driving we have, like in Calgary, um, about 75% of all the trips that happen in a given day are done by car. Uh, you know, so that includes everything from going to work to go to get groceries, going to a daycare. Uh, so it's really come to dominate how people move around in between cities. And then, so I think there's been the recognition that, okay, I think the pendulum has swung a little bit far. We've actually got really robust road infrastructure for the vehicles. And we're missing um, pieces of infrastructure that we need for pedestrians, for cyclists, and you know, and some of the newer types of transportation that are coming along too. And so there's been more of that sense of okay, so how do we how do we rebalance the system? So you've got more of a mix. I mean, mm. all the work that we're doing, nobody nobody's projecting that you know for a whole city that you're not going to see use of cars anymore. Cars are still just given the nature of the cities we've built over the last six or seven years. Cars are always going to be piece of the puzzle um, but that there's plenty of places you know whether it's an inner city community or just even within within a suburban community there's there's lots of opportunities for people to walk and cycle and not not need motorized transport to get around and so starting to build up some of that infrastructure again and like i said too i mean there's other aspects around that we're much more conscious of health and environmental impacts than than we were and, and again you go back in the 50s and the 60s there wasn't at least broadly speaking, there wasn't the same understanding of the impacts that the transportation decisions mm-hmm. were having. But we know these things now. So it's like, how, again, how do we build more balance into the system? How do we offer more options for people? Mm-hmm. And then that's where some of the new technology gets really, I mean, it depends, depends where it goes and, and how people choose to use new technologies. I mean, they can be good or bad. Um, but they definitely create opportunities for people to find more choices in terms of how they get around. And, they, you know, those are things like that are called uh, mobility as a service systems is, is one example some cities do where you have on a single app on your phone, it's like, oh, I wanted to know, okay, so how would I take the train here? And then you could combine that with a, a scooter rental at the end of your, your trip or it's like, oh, I'm going to take my car up to this point, drop it off and get on a, on a, on a bike share. Or just you, you can mix modes if you want to. You can just use one mode, but you can figure out, okay, this is the cheapest option, this is the fastest option, this is the lowest emissions option. Mm-hmm. So there's more choice, and the technology makes that easier than it's ever been before. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting, like when you, when you were doing the uh, <clears throat> kind of the intro and explaining the profession, the idea of, you know, how people make decisions um, and then just, just the – growth of choice and just that intersection of, uh, you know, I've talked a lot about in in various episodes, this idea of choice architecture and the people that design the systems, that's the primary driver of how people inside the system make those choices. So that's, you know, transportation is probably the the biggest, easiest example uh, of that. And so the, the infrastructure that's built, how, how it's, 
it stays put for so long, right? You know, like a road allowance is going to be a road or some right away forever. But the intersection of the digital infrastructure, how that mixes that up and, and, and changes things in a way that hadn't been uh, available for, for folks before. It's a really interesting and, and I imagine pretty interesting through your career even to see that shift from physical infrastructure and primarily focused on efficiency shifting to other kinds of choices and other kinds of factors that you can play a really important role in. Well, and, and maybe one little fun tidbit around, you, as you said, like you built the infrastructure, the infrastructure is there for a long time. I remember I was in Rome, uh, oh God, it was probably about 15 years ago, but there's a beautiful 3D map of Rome around 300 AD. Uh, that was made. And you can see all the roads, you can see where the forum was and that. And I was staying on this, this road, not that far from the forum, and I realized that road was on the, the map from 300 AD. <laughs> the communities had been completely rebuilt probably a dozen times, you know, beyond recognition, sure. but it's the same road, right? The same yeah. right of way that was allocated. Yeah. It's just once people start moving down a path and things will just keep building around that. So mm. yeah, the decisions we, we have, they can last for centuries. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's where the, that's the, everything you read about change is, you know, change is accelerating in so many different ways, but that's such an interesting mashup against the physical form of our cities. And just that's, that's one of the hardest things that we are and will keep grappling with. I'm sure because, you know, my iPhone's obsolete four months after I, <laughs> after I buy it, cause the next one's out and all the fashion, all those kinds of things that are so quick. And then like you say, 300 AD and there's the road. <laughs> well, and and I think too we are we are more and more running up against whether it's because you know sometimes it's it's financial limitations or it's just physically you know people are very sensitive around not wanting to go in and and disrupt existing communities more than more than necessary. I mean cities are always changing at all mm-hmm. so it's always change in the community but so I think there is more of a focus on how do we make the most of the infrastructure we have as opposed to constantly building new. And right. and there's still there's still both of that going on. It's not as build new communities in the edge of the city. There's new roads, there's new interchanges, there's new new transit lines. But in an established part of the city, it's more how do you optimize this? It's like we don't want to widen the road yet again and, and wipe out a row of shops or houses. Mm-hmm. And in the fifties or sixties they might have considered that. Um, that that's not a common approach that you'd find these days. It's more, it's like, how do you, how do you get the traffic signal working more effectively? How do you get it communicating with other signals in the system? So that the traffic is flowing as smooth as you can. You can never get these things hundred yeah. percent, um, but you can reduce the impacts uh, yeah. And, and yeah, and then avoid a lot of additional expenses and a lot of additional disruptions. So one of the things that we want to do in this series is give folks uh, an understanding of, you know, the, the positives and the, and the dark side of the various contributors. So you, you've spoken in, in some ways about this already, but, you know, when we're looking at uh, urban planners or elected officials, um, civil engineers, other kinds of folks, um, what would you say are, are the best kinds of expertise that transportation engineering brings to the process of city building? Well, I think, I think transportation engineers are really good problem solvers. Like if you give, give, at least this is my experience, you give transportation engineers a problem, they will, they'll run off and they will find a solution to be able to deal with it mm-hmm. and are very action oriented. So really want to focus on how do we actually get 
what we're doing in the ground so people can start benefiting from it as, as soon as possible, or at least, you know, when it makes, makes sense. So there's, there's the aspect of planning what you need to do, but there's really a drive to how do we implement. And so I think, I think we bring that kind of energy to the equation if you want. It's like, okay, how are we going to drive this to the finish line? Mm. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> and then, and then I, I think, you know, like with other engineers, tend to have really good project management still, skills. So, again, making sure that we're being thoughtful and going through all the necessary steps. Not all of my colleagues would agree that I'm the best at this part. Um, <laughs> but, but there is, as an industry as a whole, really good at managing projects, particularly the traditional projects. We've done them so many times. You know, sure. if you're doing a bridge design or something like that. Each of them is unique and different, but there's a lot of built-up expertise. Right. Uh, so there's that kind of thing. And I think I think transportation engineers are really good in terms of thinking about risk management and particularly public safety. Now, sometimes, and this will probably get to, I, I think I know where you're going with the, the next question, but, you know, there can be those, those, those tensions sometimes between making, you know, how safe is something versus how usable is something, you know, how friendly is it? Um, but I think bringing that thought process about what's needed for public safety is really valuable. Mm, yeah, great. Um, yeah, and then so if we go to the other side of the coin, uh, it, historically and or you know present day, because there's not no no industry changes overnight. Um, what would you say are the most problematic contributions or practices that transportation engineering's brought to cities? Well, one of the things it's it's one of those double edged swords. Is like I said, one of the upsides is being very um, problem you know, like very focused on problem solving but what i've observed you know uh in my industry is that i think sometimes transportation engineers and engineers in general can be too quick to jump to finding solutions and there's that need to step back and say are we asking the right questions so that we know we're defining yeah. the problem correctly because yeah. like i said what once once you give an engineer a problem they will go solve it that that's not a question mark um but was it the right problem and so i think Case in point, like I said earlier, if you know if you were a transportation engineer in the 1950s and it's like, oh, okay, we need to build a highway between one city and the next. In the 50s, that was, you know, at least given the understanding of the issues of the time, that was the right problem. And they went in and figured out how to solve it. But as we've increasingly gone to the point where we see the um, environmental impacts, the community impacts from you know high levels of congestion and shortcutting, all this kind of stuff, is like you know, like you said. Every industry can be slow to change, um, and in many ways we are changing. But at the same time, there's still that aspect of how do we minimize congestion, and you know, and um, how do we make sure that we've got sufficient road space? And there's and there's competing demands. It's like yes, you need your trucks to get to the grocery store so they can deliver the goods. So how do you fit a truck in this space? At the same time, you don't want this huge wide road that nobody's comfortable walking across. Mm-hmm. So. You know, and I think we're getting better at dealing with those tensions, but there's still that kind of historic perspective. Like I know when I was going through engineering in, in university, mo- almost all of my classes on transportation engineering were focused on roadway design, traffic management, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. There were little bits and pieces around the human elements, around the environmental impacts, but the vast majority of the training was on traditional engineering. Um, so a lot that, you know, and a all of us that, that are trying to deal with these other issues, that's stuff we've had to learn to some extent on our own since then. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, I think we're getting there. But it's, yeah, there's this shift in mentality that we've got to work with. So it still goes back to don't rush into doing the solution too fast. Make sure that you've, you've really defined the right problem. 
Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's interesting just in terms of, um, you know, understanding the problem that is, is trying to be solved. Uh, and over time there's within, um, organizations, institutions, professions, expertise then gets built up to that. And that creates its own momentum (laughs) for, uh, you know, just, just in all kinds of ways. And so that's the, that's the way that things are solved. Um, but you're, you're, you're mentioning about your, your university training that if that continues, then you have a generational continuity and then folks like yourself maybe have to self-train, disrupt intentionally cause, cause yourself and your colleagues some headaches to, to mix things up. And then you, and then you overlay the, um, what we talked about earlier, the, the, the permanence, relative permanence of city design. You know, if, if I was a computer programmer and I stopped learning in 1978, I'm probably just obsolete, but we still have all these, uh, physical artifacts that you could argue, well, my training in 1978, I can still try and solve that problem with that existing infrastructure. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, yeah. Interesting, interesting how hard it is to make changes with something that is so, and if, if you look at it from the perspective of, um, they solve the problem exactly how they, they had defined it in 1950, they did a hell of a job. So, so there is like, you know, this is what we're good at. And yeah, the, the, the organizational professional momentum is a really interesting thing to, to try and solve. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the other challenges for engineering too is that engineers like to optimize systems and say, okay, you know, whatever design I'm doing, I have optimized the solution. I've minimized all of the, the, the risks or problems. And, but you get to the point now, there's so many competing demands on transportation, especially if you're trying to make sure you're not just building, building, building. And so, you know, you might have some roads where it's like, okay, well, the, you know, there's a lot of cars commuting down here. There's a lot of truck traffic going down here. People want to cycle through here. Um, people need to be able to walk, even if it's just going for lunch from where they're at. Mm-hmm. And it's tough sometimes to get one facility to do everything. And certainly it's not going to do everything perfectly. And I think, I think that's frustrating for engineers because they want, they want the optimal outcome. And then when there is no optimal trade-off, yeah. this is how do you make that decision? Yeah. Right. But I think that's where then it's been really great to see more and more diversity because we talk about it as transportation engineering, but it's it's really moving beyond that. I mean, even the Institute of Transportation Engineers has opened up its membership to non-engineers now. Okay. I mean, I, I think yeah. you could have been before, but they've been really explicit about it yeah. now. Huh. And even on my team at work, there's eight of us doing kind of strategic and business planning work for the transportation department. Only two of us are engineers. Oh, is that right? And I think it works really well. Yeah. Uh, my, my boss is not an engineer, but is bringing a whole nother skill set, you know, thinking around business management and, and team planning and, and stuff that, that are, you know, depending on an engineer may or may not be their strong suit. So there's a, there's a lot of synergies mm-hmm. uh, that we're getting out of this, this greater diversity. And so it makes it a little easier then to start, how do you weigh the pros and cons when there's no right answer? You, you need more of that diversity of thought. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's a, that's a nice uh, segue into the next question I had planned for you. Um, so as we think about the future of cities and you're a great person to, to be thinking about this with the initiatives you're working on, um, where, where does transportation engineering need to evolve, uh, into, to, to reflect the realities of today and, and of course projecting out into the future? Well, I think, I think one of the things, and 
the the um, pandemic situation we're in right now is is one example, but I, I would characterize it more broadly as thinking about what are some of the big shocks to the system that we need to prepare for, whether that's a pandemic event, uh, climate change would come to mind for me. And well, and maybe an example, oh, okay, I'll come back to that in a second, but you know, whether it's pandemic, climate change, uh, in Calgary's case, you know, what if we're looking at fundamental shifts in the global uh, energy sector? And what does that mean for our economy, the kind of resources we have to do projects? So it's being prepared for more unknowns, I think, is one of the critical things. Is, again, if you're looking at an engineer back in the 1950s, I think the future, not having been there personally, but I think the future probably <laughs> looked a lot more certain to them in the 50s. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, we've just come out of this difficult time and it's just progress, progress, progress. But I think we're seeing now it's way more complex than that. Systems, like global systems, are way more complex than that. Mm-hmm. Several points. Uh, but even even something simple, like I was thinking of the climate change example, is um, in Calgary when we had the flood in 2013, uh, and that uh, took out some of our bridge infrastructure. You know, there's several mm-hmm. desk bridges. There's one of the, the main bridges just south of downtown. And, uh, again, making the right decision at the time of the flood, that bridge was rebuilt in one week. And, in, and we needed that bridge back as fast as we could get it. So it was the right decision. But the next right decision, I think, would be is, okay, we know a flood like that or worse will happen again at some point. So wouldn't it be great if we had sitting on the shelf a new set of plans so the next time that bridge is wiped out by a flood, when we go to rebuild it in a week, we rebuild a new bridge that is less likely to be affected by the next flood. Right, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So having some of that... Uh, I mean, it's redundancy in a way, but it's thinking about we're going to be facing more disruptions and impacts in the future uh, than we have in the past. And we don't know exactly when they'll be. We don't know exactly what we look like or what they'll look like. But we've got enough of a sense that we can start planning for some of those eventualities. Hmm. So I think that's one of the big things transportation needs to do. Um, leaving, leaving aside the shocks, I think, and you know, again, some of the discussion that's happened in my own team with a few of my colleagues is this idea, how do we balance, there's more and more demands on the street. You know, so you still have uh, pedestrians, cyclists, you've got cars, you've got delivery trucks, you've got buses, but now you've got scooters, you might have delivery droids, as I like to call them, you know, like, you know, where they'll bring your pizza or stuff. Uh, you've got uh, things like street cafes that want to be there, pop-up parks, so how do we start redefining the nature of what a street is and what we want to do? I think you, you said something earlier that made me think about, you know, it's looking at it differently because in the past, someone might have said, oh, well, this street cafe is an obstacle to people moving down up and down the street, whether it's a pedestrian or car. But what if the street cafe is their destination, right? So it's, it's partly it's a different mindset, but it's also how do you, how do you balance the space? And um, a couple of my colleagues have, have talked about it's like, do you need to think about it in terms of different speeds rather than different, you know, it's like, it's not pedestrian space and cyclist space and car space. It's here's the slow moving space where things can kind of comfortably move together. Here's the medium speed space and here's the fast space. Mm-hmm. And then, and again, and there's no, there's never going to be a right, perfect answer for any street, but it's like, can we, can we get a better balance? Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, what else? Cause I think, well, one thing it's always that and it's, kind of builds on that wanting to optimize is the whole perfect is the enemy of the good yep. idea is that we'd be better, be better to try and, you know, and, and take some risks sometimes and try something out. 
it may not be perfect, uh, but partly we'll learn more from having tried. I mean, it's a lot like how the private sector will try stuff, but it's tougher again when you're building something. You're going, well, yeah, that's going to be there for a long time. Yeah. So it's how do you, how do you reasonably take some of those risks, and how do you, how do you build support within the community? Yeah. To try a few things, take some risks, and I think we've done that in some cases. I mean, can I carry that putting in the cycle track network was an example of that. Yeah. And it was put in on a temporary basis for the first year and a half. And, you know, there were a few disruptions, but by and large, it worked, worked really well and has become permanent since then. So yeah. well, we get some license to try something. Yeah. And I think one of, on the, in that example, one of the really great things that was done was there's a whole ton of different kinds of data that was, was, was gathered, right? So there were like efficiency numbers and it was, you know, like the longest observed delay was something like 90 seconds or something like that. So for the people that really got to move through or want to move through, it's like, that's not that big a deal. And then I think there is other things around, you know, like revenues for local businesses. So there's an economic impact and all those kinds of things. So that's where I think the, the idea of, um, measurement and where engineers certainly thrive in that, that environment too, is is super important. But again, what are you trying to solve and what are you trying to uh, deliver? So, you know, you mentioned a few times mindsets. So the mindsets and the, you know, the objective of efficiency, the metrics are very different than a nice, wonderful experience having an espresso at a cafe, right? And just sort of to figure out how, how to measure those things at the same time, knowing that, as you said, there's no perfect example and it's not going to be a perfect solution, but just to, to, thoughtfully measure and understand, then it, then it allows for a more robust conversation about which things should take precedent in this instance over another. And I think, and then that's the last bit too, I'd say in terms of looking at, uh, it's the engineering industry broadly rather than just transportation engineering, but it is yeah. making sure we've got that diversity of thought. And I know I mentioned that before, but I think it is worth reiterating. It's, you know, making sure if we got, you know, lots of different cultural perspectives. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we got different gender perspectives, age. I mean, you know, like this, there's some some um, groups that look at like what's called eight to eighty. How do you make sure that a, a you know a young child and a, an elderly adult are comfortable moving in your system? The eight to eighty cities concept is if everything we do in our cities is great for an eight year old and an eighty year old, it will be great for all people. There is a global organization called Eight Eighty Cities, which was founded by Gil Peñalosa. And I and I know there's been some work. Like there's a women in transportation group uh, at the city of Calgary, and this oh, I can't remember the exact number, but it's something like only about twenty percent of the you know the employees in within transportation are, are are women. So again, how do we build more? How do we build more of that diversity so we're getting more more different thought processes at the table? Because otherwise, you know, you can have the smartest person in the world, but if they're thinking by themselves, they'll miss something. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, okay, that's that's wonderful. Um, so if if um some of our, our listeners are armchair urbanists, let's call them, folks that aren't having to spend all this time, you know, going to school and learning these things uh, that you and I may have. Uh, but they're those kinds of folks are essential to, to building cities. So um, what advice would you give somebody that say at a community workshop or something like that, and they find themselves uh, engaging with a transportation engineer? Um, how could, how could one effectively engage with a transportation engineer on an issue in the, in their neighborhood? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, if the, if the, if they're attending a process that's, that's already been set up and then I think some of it would be going in, you know, like you talked about a moment ago, 
what metrics are they using? What have they got in mind as the priorities? Mm-hmm. And I'm being clear about what those are and why they see that that way. And, then, and, and at the same time, asking the transportation engineer, what metrics are they using? And why do they feel those are the priorities? You know, I mean, some, some of those things may be up for discussion. Some of those things, there may be a reason why they have to achieve some certain metric. And again, it could be something around safety. It could be some very specific piece of direction that they've received around what this project needs to do. Um, but just trying to build that two-way understanding mm-hmm. uh, of why, you know, why are we doing something this way, especially if there's something you disagree about, and, that, and that's fine. And I, I'd say... You know, when when we're going to these engaged sessions, we really do want to hear this feedback. But it's just, yeah. So it's trying to make sure that it's um, that just building understanding both ways in the conversation. Um, so because then that that can even bring some of those you know barriers down because it's like, oh, okay, I understand why you're saying what you're saying, and so how do we how do we work with that? I think, I think that in some ways that's probably the biggest piece because. It's usually not the technical parts of an engineering project that are, I mean, they, they, they can be complicated, but they're usually the most straightforward piece. Yeah. The, the difficult parts are, are what outcomes do we want? How do you meet the needs of the majority of people? And again, that there's no optimal solution. So I think it's, it's needing everyone involved in a project to, to understand what are the competing demands and at least, at least be able to say how, can we and how would we go about minimizing impacts if there's certain certain decisions that are just that we're stuck with, mm-hmm. or that there's there's an overriding reason why something's so important that we have to have to at least do a portion of the project a certain way? Uh, so I think that that's probably the biggest piece. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. And, and I think really that, that's, that's super helpful because it's, uh, you know, going back to your you know your original point about um, you know give us a give us a problem. And we'll go ahead and solve it. So let's so use that community intelligence to you know revisit and challenge. Are we actually trying to hit the you know solve the right the right problem? That's really interesting. And, and then I think on a related note, the earlier that conversation can happen, the easier it is for for anyone to react to it. Because if you're ninety percent of the way through the project and 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 there's a desire to fundamentally shift one of the the goals. That's tough because there's been all this work that's happened versus if you're, if you're in the early days and you can get in there and have those conversations, that's the best time to try and influence, you know, what the final product looks like. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Uh, okay. So last question. Uh, I know you're a well-traveled guy, so this will make it difficult. Uh, can you uh, tell me about a city that you love and why you love it? Oh, there's so many to choose from. I'm trying to think of cities that I, well, you know, this, and it surprised me, but one of the cities I loved the most was New Orleans. Huh. Um, I went there 2008. So, you know, just they kind of, you know, it was um, sort of just several years after there'd been the hurricane down there. And you, you wouldn't have known in, in the older areas of the city, but it was just, I, I loved how much New Orleans has held on to its history, hmm. uh, the really unique culture. But, it, but also from a transportation point of view, the ease of walking around yep. in, in, that, in that city, it's like everything is, is so incredibly compact. You, know, you can go from the French Quarter to the downtown. Uh, you know, so I, in many ways, I, I, yeah, and I just loved it. But it was, it, it was the blend of the physical form with the really vibrant culture. Hmm. that yeah. you see there yeah i think i was there it was either the week right before or the week right after carnival so i think you know it was just kind of on the edge and stuff but it's just alive yeah and people everywhere yeah so i just 
I loved it. Today's perspective is one of many in city building. Every profession has its challenges and opportunities. If you think we missed any key points about this profession, let us know. Email us at hello at 360degree.city. Stay tuned for our next episode in this series. And in the meantime, I hope all our listeners out there are staying healthy and safe. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.